Sometimes there's some confusion between mindfulness and concentration. And most of you, if you've done other forms of meditation, probably have done concentrative styles of meditation where the mind is aimed at an object. It could be the breath or a candle or something else and quieting the mind in that way. But in Buddhist insight meditation, we actually blend the two together, those two skills of paying attention. And I'd like to talk about the relationship between them and how we can use concentration skillfully to deepen mindfulness. For those of you that have been here in the last few weeks, what we did was look at the difficult forces of life, the forces of grasping, the wanting mind, and, and also the forces of aversion, of how we shrink away from painful experience by, with fear or grief or anger, fighting back, and how we might work with and awaken through those experiences by being present. And the emphasis in the last few weeks has really been presence, how to, even though our tendency is to hold on real tight or to push away life, how instead to accept what's there and really bring a quality of care, to bring a real compassionate presence to just what is and in that way awaken around it and awaken through it. Sometimes, as many of you know, the waves of what is, the waves of anger, the waves of guilt or shame or wanting are really, really strong, right? And there can be really a sense of uh, drowning in them or being driven around by them in such a way that there's not too much of a shot at just kind of opening up our hearts and minds and saying, let it be, and growing from it. Rather, we're in a struggle. So what to do when it gets overwhelming? What to do when there's not enough space in our awareness, there's not enough steadiness in our attention to really be with what is in a way that has any sense of balance? You mostly know the myth of Sisyphus, right? This is, Sisyphus was the king of Corinth and he was condemned by the gods to Hades, right? And his punishment, he did something major league wrong, his punishment was to keep pushing that boulder up the hill and then it would roll back down and then he had to keep doing it over and over and over again. So for us, it's much like that. What we find in our lives is that our conditioning our habits to be reactive and the dramas that we play out with our loved ones and in life keep getting replayed. So that I have people coming in uh, for therapy sessions saying, you know, for a while I thought I had dealt with this issue that started when I was two years old, but I find it's, you know, still there, that we are still working on the same core issues. One friend, a psychologist up at Harvard, who's also a Vipassana teacher, said he really thinks the core issues continue with us throughout our life. And our freedom is as we begin to shift how we relate to them. 
that's our freedom. But meanwhile, the intense waves of experience seem to keep coming, and we're like Sisyphus, we keep battling, we keep pushing, and there is that sense, and, the, and we know it because we get tired, that we are in a battle a lot of the time. One of the reminders I love from Thich Nhat Hanh is that it's not enough to suffer. We have to touch peace also. You know how there's this emphasis sometimes in Buddhist teachings that it's all about suffering and how we need to face our suffering and recognize it and be with it. And, and one of the kind of sweet reminders is that's not all it's about. That it's part of our path to learn how to connect with what's peaceful, what's calm, what's quiet. And that sometimes we need to get more skillful in that in order to be with what's difficult. Sometimes we need to take a break. Mindfulness is considered to be the factor of enlightenment, and the Buddha described these factors of enlightenment that are really what gets cultivated through practice and what reflects our true nature. Mindfulness is that factor of enlightenment which really connects and balances all the other states of body-mind that arise. Mindfulness is the quality of awareness that knows what's happening now that this moment recognizes what's here. But if there's a lot of tension in our bodies, if the container is too small, it becomes quite difficult to pay attention. We've described in other, at other times that concentration, this kind of focusing of the mind, is like aiming a camera at what's there and adjusting the lenses to see really clearly, you know, getting it into focus. And if, my, if concentration is the camera that we're getting into focus, mindfulness is taking the picture. But first we need to get things into focus. There needs to be some clear aiming of the mind. One of the first insights we have when we start sitting and our intentions to watch the breath is that our mind is completely out of control. Eh? <laughs> Sounds familiar? That it's going all over the place. There's all sorts of thoughts and emotions and sensations, a barrage of experience. And it's not so easy to pay attention to just one object or one place of focusing. We're filled with plans, with reactions, with likes, with dislikes. So concentration is considered to be a stabilizing factor of the mind. That even if we go away a hundred times, this practice of coming back to one place begins to quiet all the waves that thinking generates. It's 
kind of you can imagine a pool of turbulent water and what it's like when the waves are moving in every single direction chaotically. And with concentration, it's like creating one wave through that water and then gradually even having that wave settle down so you can see clearly to the bottom. You can concentrate, as I mentioned, on a breath, but it can also be on a mantra. It can be on sound, on a candle or some image. It can be on quality of heart, like loving kindness. It doesn't really matter so much. Although in this practice, we emphasize the breath, the actual in-out or rising, falling of the breath. That's a convenient focus because we breathe all the time. So we can do it any time and practice in that way. But like a muscle in the mind, it becomes a skill, this coming back, this steadiness of mind. And as we get quieter with concentration, there can be a really profound sense of peace and of calm. Many of you have touched that that as the mind is steadied by aiming at one object, there's a distinct sense of ease, of opening, of serenity, of tranquility. It's very difficult to be mindful, to know what's true right now, if there isn't some of that. We don't have to be in a profound, complete state of samadhi, where there's a real cessation of a lot of the ways of activity. But there has to be some sense of quietness or calm, some stillness, in order for us to pay attention in a balanced way. It's for that reason, in every sitting when we gather here, we start with the focus on the breathing. We start by trying to calm and center the mind by just paying attention to one object, the breath. Tonight we used both the breath and some words that actually can help to deepen the concentration on the breath. We can aid the cultivation of concentration and ease by other activities that really do center us, such as being in nature, listening to music. We each have our own particular ones that really make a difference. But touching into some sense of tranquility is what allows us to bring more presence to what we're doing. And it really takes a letting go. You can't go into nature and really be on a walk and come into a sense of harmony or ease if you're ruminating about some tension at work, at home. We can't listen to music and really listen if we're listening to other worrisome thoughts. So there's a letting go quality in the process of concentration, letting go of whatever else distracts us, whatever else arises in the mind, and just simply being with what is. This is again the myth of Sisyphus. We think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero condemned by gods, 
truth is Sisyphus is in love with, is attached to the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he is permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Well, we too are identified with our burdens. The distractions that arise as we sit in practice and during our life, meaning the worries, the planning, all that goes on, we're very attached to, even though It causes us pain, even though it keeps us from living our moments. We're very attached to this boulder that we're pushing around. A woman I saw recently as a client was describing her tendency to always feel at fault in the world, feel like she's wrong in some way. And a number of months ago, she had an abortion. She's mid-40s and for many, many reasons uh, felt that she couldn't have a child and she was pregnant. And then that became the focus of her evilness as a person. And so she came in because she was suffering with such amounts of shame and guilt and she said ever since the abortion all she's done is punished herself. She hasn't let herself eat right, she hasn't rested, she's worked over hard. She just keeps punishing herself. But this wasn't just, this is an example of what she does to herself. She says this goes on through her life, that she always has something that she is absolutely fixated on and how she's doing things wrong, whether it's as a parent or in her work world, in her relationships, as a, in her relationship as a wife. And then she goes around punishing herself for what's wrong. So this is this boulder she keeps carrying. She's committed to the punishment. She's committed to pushing the boulder. And when I asked her, well, what would it be like if you forgave yourself? You know, just for this, for this abortion. What if you saw the the pain and the needs inside your own being that made you make this choice and you really forgave yourself? You were really compassionate. And she said, well, it's, it's unimaginable because I'd really have to be forgiving everything I do wrong. And I can't imagine being okay with myself in that deep a way. It's really hard to let go of what we hold against ourselves. It's hard to let go of our kind of habit of fighting and pushing and worrying in our lives. It really takes a lot of trust in some way that we're going to be okay and life's going to be okay if we stop carrying around these burdens. A a really deep trust just to let go and let be and let the moment be all right. story I heard recently, um, some adults for his birth, their birthday gave an their aging father, who must have been 87, 
a, his first ride on an airplane. He had never been on an airplane before. So this very little old man got onto this small airplane. It's one of those little ones that goes up and does stuff and comes down. And um, all his, ch his children and his grandchildren waited on the ground and, watched, and you know, watched the plane do its thing. And then it came down and landed. And he got out and he kind of was excited and shaky and all. They said, well, how was it, granddaddy? And he um, great, really exciting, really wonderful. Well, were you scared? And he said, well, I never really let my weight down. We don't let our weight down very much. Do you know what I mean? Like really kind of let ourselves be. We don't let go into the moment so much. We all have this conditioning. We each have our own particular garden variety of it, but our own conditioning to hold back, to react, to hold on tightly, to worry. So for each of us, it's a bit of an experiment day by day on what will let us let go into the moment and be more fully there. There's different ways we do it, both in formal practice and informally through our day. Informal practice is much the way I described earlier. We start by concentrating some, by excluding other information, excluding our worries, excluding our thoughts, our fantasies, and just simply staying with one thing to quiet down the mind, to make some more room. It's kind of the difference between if you put dye, if you put something agitating in a little sink, the difference between what happens then and if you put it in an ocean, you know, that we try to calm down and open up our mind some by concentrating on the breath, on something that can quiet us. Well, in our informal practice, which is the rest of our lives, there are ways back home again. And for most people I know, we're all, we're all trying to find the different recipes that really do help us to come back into an, a quiet and an open space of heart and mind. Some of us, or most of us, tell us th ourselves things. We coach ourselves. And you've probably found yourself doing that. It's okay, I'm okay, it's gonna be all right, I'm doing great, you know, it's not so bad. We, we just have little ways of trying to make it all right. And that's no small thing. I mean, many of you know the story I tell of Deepama, who's the Buddhist woman teacher, died several years ago, very beautiful, compassionate, grandmother of a teacher. And she'd be sitting in a big hall of, with a big hall of students, and she'd look around as people were meditating, and whenever she saw anybody, that looked upset, like they were getting in the grips of something, she'd go over to them and put her hand on their shoulder and just simply whisper, it's okay, it's okay. It's a powerful mantra because for the most part, when we're in reactivity, when we're caught in our conditioning, there's a subtle sense of it's not okay. We sometimes don't even know what's going on. I'm not okay, things are not going to be okay. So it can be quite radical to be in the habit 
of softly offering that message to ourselves. So that's one way we come back again, by talking to ourselves. For others, sometimes there's an image of something that we value or something that reminds us of peace, of the heart. It could be an image of someone we love, that we know loves us. It could be a more archetypal image, kind of of the bodhisattvas or whatever saint or whatever being inspires you. An image of nature. But sometimes the visual image can help to remind us of something greater that's beyond the, the waves of the moment that are keeping us caught and imprisoned. Sometimes we come back by simply reminding ourselves to relax through our bodies. I can't stress how powerful and important it is during the day to remember to feel your body. We can spend hours on end off in thought trains. Have you noticed that? And really not feel the life of our body. So to feel back into the body and relax is a powerful way of coming home again. To just listen to sounds. To simply stop and listen to sounds. This is a poem from Mary Oliver. Once only, and then in a dream, I watched while secretly, and with the tenderness of any caring woman, a cow gave birth to a red calf, tongued him dry and nursed him in a warm corner of the clear night, in the fragrant grass, in the wild domains of the prairie spring. And I asked them, in my dream, I knelt down and asked them to make room for me. Whether it's in our dreams, or through skillful thoughts, through prayer, we all long for a way back home again, back to a place of really resting in peace, finding some stillness or some quiet so we can listen to our lives without interfering so much, without keeping so busy. It's really hard to stop doing. Have you noticed? You know, how I was talking to Louisa on the way in about how when you have a day to yourself and there's a real beauty to it, there's such a freedom to not having overt demands, and it's possible to get quiet, but sometimes we're so in the habit of doing, it's hard to stop doing. Try it sometime when you're in the midst of things, just to absolutely stop, and you can feel all the forward pressure in the body that just wants to keep doing. We get relief in some way by staying active and busy and doing. In meditation, there is some doing. You know, there takes some effort. We sit, we create a space, we get silent. There's some doing in concentration to aim the mind, to stay with the breath. But the meditation does not really cook, does not really wake us up until we stop doing. 
And yet, even as we sit, and many people report this, and I know this for myself, there's such a tendency to try to manipulate the meditation, you know, and make it be a certain way, adjust how we're breathing, adjust how we're sitting, change the thought from this to that, try to remember, you know, we're doing, doing, doing. Somewhere along the line, we have to just stop and let life be, let life just do itself, and just simply be the awareness that sees it and feels it and senses it without trying to control or fix anything. Lately, my son, who's nine, has taken to baking bread. And he does it because he knows I love fresh bread, you know. I love the first 10 minutes out of the oven. And, um, and he does it part to, you know, he's like an offering to me. He's not that generous in many ways, but he really likes to make things for me in the kitchen. And um, so he's into bread and he's great at putting different ingredients together and he, he does a really good balancing of it and he's fantastic at kneading it. But where he falls short is allowing it to rise. <laughs> he doesn't like to wait for that, so he only waits a little. And then he has another place he falls short, which is he doesn't like to wait while it's in the oven very long. <laughs> so it comes out a little raw. You know? <laughs> the crust is great. And when, he <laughs> and when he asks me how it is, I always let him know the crust is great, but I do tell him that it's a bit raw. And so his stretch, his edge has been that he tries to wait. He tries to be patient. And in a way, that's what we're all learning, to really let ourselves bake, you know, by we're doing, the, we're doing the right effort, as the Buddha described it, to be here. But then how to sit back and just let it happen, you know? Mm. Oh, here it is. This is a poem many of you know, but it's always one of those that reminds me, brings me back. It's called Keeping Quiet by Pablo Neruda. Now we will count to 12, and we will all keep still for once on the face of the earth. Let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead in winter and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to 12 and you keep quiet and I will go.
the common denominator of all these pathways back home of soothing ourselves with the breath, with music, with comments to ourselves, with images. The common denominator is all about freeing ourselves from the prison of a set of waves that we've been trapped in and reconnecting to a space that's more open and peaceful and free. Mary Oliver writes, in a book I read and cherish, going to Walden is not so easy a thing as a green visit. It is the slow and difficult trick of living and finding it where you are. So there's a way in which we keep trying to find our way back and it can't be by some grand gesture that we go off to a monastery and in a cave in a certain particular place in a certain season with just the right person or nobody there, then we touch into that magic place of peace. You know what I mean? That it's really about discovering more and more each moment of our lives how to find a stillness or a balance in the midst of what's happening. We need to have intentional practices, as I've described, where we push away, in a sense, some of what's going on and just quiet the mind to get a glimmer, to get some freedom. And yet there's a danger to just concentrating in this way. This is one kind of concentration, focusing on an object. And what it does is it temporarily suppresses other experience which can be useful as long as, in addition to that, we're practicing mindfulness. We're opening the awareness beyond just that. If our only practice is to aim the mind at a mantra or absorb ourselves in the breath, then what we've done is we've learned to push away other parts of life and find a temporary place of calm, but we haven't learned how to deal with the weather. This it's definitely been a part of my history in that I, as a number of you know, spent 12 years living in an ashram where the primary teachings and practices were around concentrating in that way. Beautiful mantra breath meditations that could bring one into quite a state of rapture and samadhi. And what we'd do is we'd gather for two and a half hours every morning. We'd get up at 3.30, and from 3.30 until 6, we'd be chanting and meditating and really aiming the mind in this way and quieting and opening. And each morning, it would be bliss. And then we'd go into this busy day, and each day, for some reason, I'd be surprised that I lost that bliss, you know? great surprise, everything changes. But I hadn't learned a way to be with what else there was, to be with the people that I was living with. I hadn't learned to really pay attention to relationships and with different parts of myself that I was pushing under. So there is a trap to just practicing concentration. And there's a freedom to being able to use it in service of mindfulness. But then let go of just one object, let go of just the breath, 
and open the attention and say, okay, whatever's here, be with whatever. So you'll notice that that's what we did tonight. We started with a practice that kind of aimed the mind at calming with the breath and then open the attention to include whatever else is there. A second type of concentration, one type is aiming the mind at one object, a second type is bringing concentration in a moment-to-moment way to whatever is predominant in experience. In this way, and this is a very powerful and penetrating practice, that same awareness that can really beam in on the breath is brought to sound and to sensation and to emotions, to changing mental states, body states. In this way, we open the attention to include whatever's there and the awareness is with whatever's there in a very immediate, alive and penetrating way. There's an unwavering quality to the attention when it's focused in that way. Most of you know that light, when it's concentrated into a laser, can cut right through steel, right? And in the same way, our awareness, when it's concentrated, can penetrate quite deeply into the nature of the body-mind experience. What this means is that instead of perceiving our emotions, our other experiences as these kind of solid blocks of experience that we're stuck in, when we can concentrate in a moment-to-moment way, bringing mindfulness, presence to what is, life then is experienced as a changing flow. There's nothing solid, there's nothing unchanging, therefore there's nothing that entraps. It's moving, flowing, ever-changing. This is the power of concentration. This is from Margaret Mead. She writes, if you pay attention in every moment, you form a new relationship to time. In some magical way, by slowing down, you become more efficient, productive, energetic, Focusing without distraction directly on that which is in front of you, not only do you become immersed in the moment, you become that moment. Not only do you become immersed in the moment, you become that moment. Isn't that a wonderful way to live? It says Rumi described it, to let the beauty of our life be where we are, this moment. Again, back to the myth of Sisyphus. So there Sisyphus is, and there we are, kind of pushing these boulders of our life, you know, running through the same patterns of conditioning, of reactivity, of trying hard, of resisting. And we're advised to just let go, right? Just let go. But what is it we're really letting go of? One way to think about this is that it's not the boulder and the pushing that's the problem, it's that we think there's a problem. That Sisyphus thinks 
that there's something terrible about pushing a boulder. That when we have bad weather, so to speak, inside us, strong emotions of anger, pain in our bodies, these are the boulders, that we slap onto that pain, we add onto it, something's wrong. Something's wrong about pushing this boulder. And that our real freedom and Sisyphus's freedom is maybe not so much even stepping aside as just being moment to moment with the experience of what he's doing. When there's pushing, there's pushing. When it's falling back down, it's falling back down. That our path is really not about changing our circumstances so much as changing our way of relating to it. That we talked last week about how there are some things that it is wise and skillful and compassionate to change. You know, if you're sitting on something that's pricking you, to stand up. But for many of us, there's things in our lives we can't change. There are boulders that we're pushing. There's things that are going to fall down again, conditioning that's going to arise again. And rather than trying to manipulate or control our lives, how about not assuming anything's wrong? Just being with what is, moment by moment. Our path is really about living our moments more fully, regardless of what's happening in them. And our way to doing that is to really come back into our bodies, to relax, to feel some space, and to touch into that sense of stillness enough that we can listen, just this moment, listen, and really touch what's happening right here and now. To end, this is a poem by David Wagoner called Lost. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So let's just take a few moments to sit quietly, to again, with some intention, relax our bodies and bring our awareness with care and with presence to just what is, just for a few moments, sitting up and sitting still.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.